You're listening to the Beginning of Wisdom podcast with Andrew Schumacher. Beginning of Wisdom seeks to engage in theology and apologetics in the sight of God. You can learn more at beginningwisdom.org. Hello and welcome to the Beginning of Wisdom Live. I'm Andrew Schumacher. I uh, hope you're having a pleasant evening. I hope you're doing all right and that everybody's healthy uh, where you are. And and uh, just definitely a lot of prayer going over the, the country and the world these days. And tonight, um, just want I'm excited to, to have a guest with me today. Uh, we're going to be talking about a little bit about the Trinity, about the deity of Christ, um, some different passages. Um, who I've got on the line is a guy by the name of Rivers O. Fedden, or at least that's how it looks on Facebook. Uh, you might also say Rivers of Eden. Uh, there's just a space in a different spot. Um, and uh, we kind of met because through Facebook, through uh, him sharing some of my content on a Unitarian uh, Facebook group uh, that is uh, actually run by Dale Tuggy. And if you've been listening to the show for a long time, or, or at least the channel, I guess this is before the show, uh, you might recognize the name uh, if you watched the Trinity debate that I did uh, a while back. Um, if, and if you go back there and look for the debate on Trinity, Trinitarian, Unitarian, uh, Rivers was the moder- moderator for that debate. So um, excited to go ahead and bring him on. Let me go ahead and do that. Uh, Rivers. How you doing, man? Good. How are you doing, Andrew? Pretty good. Pretty good. So, um, so yeah. Uh, now, to kind of get things going, uh, people are going to notice that you're not on the screen. Um, I, I have your name on the screen, um, but uh, tell us, I guess, a little bit about yourself, and uh, yeah, just whatever you're you're comfortable sharing. Um. Well, I don't think there's a, a whole lot to share. I, uh, um, I've been a Christian for most of my life. Um, started out in a devout Catholic family, and then it was probably when I was a teenager that uh, I just began to have questions and uh, to really take a personal interest in the things that I had uh, learned at church. And uh, at about the same time, I just started hearing uh, different uh, pastor teachers on the radio and I started to get uh, some books and I was also involved in a Bible study that was taking place at my high school. So I was starting to get um, exposed to different perspectives and also to more of a Bible-based understanding of my faith when I was a teenager and then as that eventually progressed, I began to look into um, all different categories of biblical and systematic theology, uh, went to school, and I never had a, a real interest in being a pastor, and so I ended up uh, staying in a secular career path, which I'm glad I did, you know, the way things have evolved now over the years and the fact that, you know, I have a different perspective on some things 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a, a blessing in disguise that I did uh, stay out of professional ministry and decided just to pursue um, uh, a secular career, mm-hmm. uh, which has has gone very well over the years. And I think uh, with the advent of social media seven or eight years ago, it's also been a real blessing for me because I've been able to um, not only share uh, some of the research that I've done over the years in different areas of theology and exegesis, but also to interact with people that I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to yeah. uh, interact with in my personal life. I've always gone uh, to an evangelical church for the last couple of decades. Uh, as some people know, I'm a musician and I've served in uh, worship ministry, uh, mainly as a drummer and percussionist, but I can also play some piano. So I've done that for quite a long time, and I've always felt that uh, that was the place for me to be because mm-hmm. I think it gives me an opportunity to uh, be involved with more people and fellowship that are interested in the Bible and interested in spiritual things. And even if we do have differences of opinions, um, it also provides an opportunity for me to serve and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know benefit others with the musical ability that God has given me. And so here we come to the present time on Facebook is mainly mm-hmm. where I interact with others. And like I said, it's been a real blessing because I've had an opportunity not only to uh, get involved with uh, more conversation with like-minded uh, biblical Unitarians or Christian Unitarians as they're starting to call themselves now, but also interaction with uh, Trinitarians and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and other um, mm-hmm. Bible st- uh, students that I probably wouldn't have encountered yeah. uh, in any other format. So I'm grateful for that. And that's why I participate a lot every day because I, I, I want to share my perspective on things and things mm-hmm. that I've learned, but I also want to interact with others who can provide critical evaluation because yeah. I think we're all at searching for truth. And I generally think most people are sincere, whether we agree with each other or not. And I think it's uh, beneficial that if we're sincere about learning the truth, that we're willing to interact with different perspectives and, you know, just try to sort out, you know, and and allow the different options to surface that can handle all of the evidence and can Mm -hmm. handle the best uh, critical objections. And, you know, that's ultimately what's going to bring us to the most accurate understanding of biblical truth. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you there. We definitely want to be looking for truth. And uh, this is going to be an interesting conversation. I, um, I'm excited to be here and have this with you. It's something we've been talking about doing for a very, very long time. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm glad that we finally were able to, to get it together. Uh, so I wanted to start by really uh, and talking about something that we kind of agree about. And um, that, you know, and that's bad arguments. <laughs> so, um, and so I, you know, I often hear, you know, I, I read, you, you fundamentally do stuff, you know, in comment threads, and, and we've had some interactions, but I've seen your interactions with others, especially even other Unitarians, that, um, that there's often a little bit of a, a conflict there, it seems, you know, that they, they have an argument they like, and then you're, kind of needling at that argument. Um, even though you agree with their theology, you don't like the argument. And, um, and so I wanted to, uh, you know, and this is something I think, and I think it's true on, on both sides. I think there's lots of 
people who believe in the Trinity who make bad arguments um, for it. But what I, I think there's a little bit of a difference, obviously, in, in the way things go that I think you're most of your professional or, you know, serious, well-known apologists who are Trinitarians, um, most of them I agree with their, especially those who actually really specialize in talking about the Trinity, you know, guys like Rob Bowman, um, James White, um, these guys, you know, I think that they, they make very good argumentation for the Trinity. I don't necessarily agree with every single word of everything anybody says, but, um, but then on the, uh, but there's tons and tons and tons of pastors and teachers who, who haven't really studied it. Um, and who, you know, so it's not so much, I would say the majority of, of Christians probably have a, a substandard sort of view of the Trinity, um, just because they haven't really had any serious teaching on it um, in their churches. But I see, I kind of see the flip side, at least from, from what I gather from your perspective, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but when it comes to the Unitarian side, the big teachers are the ones that you mainly have issue with. <laughs> um, you know, guys, you know, like Anthony Buzzard and, and you know, John Shane Height and these guys that, that have, you know, big sort of followings but a lot of times there you seem to butt heads with with their arguments um what would you say is you and we can say however you like if you want to say um talk about any specific arguments or if you want to you know talk about in general like what why that happens well i think the reason for that and sometimes <clears throat> the way i handle some of these uh people is misunderstood mm-hmm. but I think there's been a dramatic change during the past 10 years because of the advent of social media. Mm-hmm. So now we have a lot more people involved in these conversations. We have a lot right. more people involved that have different ideas. We mm-hmm. also have people involved that have fresh perspectives. So when I look at some of the things that were, you know, written 50 years ago by people like Sir Anthony Buzzard or, you know, John Shane Height and his co-authors mm-hmm. and the ministries that developed out of that material to a certain degree, I think it's becoming obsolete because at the time it was written, they had more limited resources. They had less mm-hmm. interaction with people of opposing opinions. Right. And to be honest, I think they relied on a lot of Trinitarian scholarship and kind of cherry picking that to establish credibility because they really didn't have anything else to work with. In mm-hmm. other words, if you were a biblical Unitarian and you wanted to increase your knowledge about biblical Unitarianism, then you had to, to contact Sir Anthony Buzzard's ministry, or you had to contact Spirit and Truth Fellowship for you mm-hmm. know where John Shane Height is involved, right. and you had to purchase their written materials. Mm-hmm. So what happened was naturally is that I think most people who came up as biblical Unitarians uh, during the end of the 20th century and maybe even the early 21st century pretty much fell in line with that material because unless you were able to do research on your own uh, with a broader scope, you pretty mm-hmm. much took them to be the authorities and you took the material that they wrote as being kind of the standard. Right. And I'm a believer that in any field of research or investigation, um, 
we always have to be open to reevaluating the evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think for my generation, we have, we have to be able to make sense of the exegetical evidence for our time now. Mm -hmm. And I think we have better resources. We have a lot more communication and we have a lot more input from people that have different ideas and perspectives that, that requires us to reevaluate some of that older material. So I know sometimes it seems like I'm overly critical of, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the, what I like to call celebrities of biblical Unitarianism. But I think the problem we have is that, that most of the written material that's available is done by these people that are no longer really actively part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to reevaluate what they wrote. We need to consider it in light of fresh perspectives on the evidence. And we can't be afraid to criticize it because if it can't stand up to exegetical scrutiny, then we need to move on from it. Mm-hmm. And so I admit I have a little bit of a, an edge towards some of these guys because, uh, you know, we have a couple of biblical Unitarian teachers that kind of hide behind their own podcast programs and they really mm-hmm. don't participate every day in the ongoing discussion. We have other ones that are older now and have kind of retired and, you know, mm-hmm. people are picking up their books and reading them and, you know, they, they have a, younger people running their ministries, yeah. but they're just not involved in the conversation. And from my perspective, I think that's a mistake. I think that we need to continue to be involved in conversation, especially now Mm -hmm. when there's people like you, for example, that have, have seen it from both sides. Yeah. Okay. Which is something that, you know, 40 years ago, we probably would have had no access to. So your opinion is important. Your critical evaluation of biblical Unitarian is important in a, Mm -hmm. in a certain way. You know, the Joe, I've noticed Jehovah Witnesses now coming out on Facebook and uh, being a few of them are really active in the conversations. And I think that's good mm-hmm. because they some of these guys are very good Bible students and they have a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So I know it might seem that I'm overly critical of some of the leaders of. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not to me I, I, right now, but yeah, I think it's necessary. Uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think it's overly critical. I mean. Anyone who watches this show, I, I I'm not shy about being critical. Um, I think that there's there's such such a thing as doing it, you know, with gentleness and respect, uh, as as it says in scriptures. But as far as uh, you know, I, I that at the same time, I think that it's it's good to to kind of you know go right for the the heart of the matter. So um, I think you know in our, in our conversations, you and I have kind of come down a lot on a similar mindset when it comes to things that we both uh talk about how we we want to come at this from scripture's perspective and obviously we come to a completely different conclusion which means one of us is definitely not doing that correctly (laughs) but um but as far as uh as far as the the desire is is there to say look what is what does scripture say like i don't i mean yes scholarship is is great and it helps us learn a lot of, of important, you know, sort of ancillary facts that help us get a fuller picture sometimes. But, um, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm not a Trinitarian because someone in, you know, an early church father said something, you know, and, and I know you're not a Unitarian because some early church father said something. Um, it's, it comes down to let's, you know, kind of get into the text. And that's something I wanted to spend, you know, some time on tonight, you know, cause 
because we've talked a little bit back and forth. Um, so I wanted to go ahead and jump in to to some texts. Um, now, if you, I guess I'll I'll give you the uh, sort of the starting place. What I what I'd like to do is talk about several things as much as we can sort of fit in. Um, I have a few things I kind of want to talk about and things that I want to talk about that you've talked about. But um, what sort of uh, it? I let me ask it this way to kind of kick things off. For you, what would be like maybe your favorite text or one of your favorite texts to go to to say, look, this is why I reject the Trinity, why I believe, you know, Jesus is, you know, human and, and solely human, um, you know, exalted in, in whatever way, but but not God, not, you know, not Yahweh. Um, what what would you say is is sort of the, the place in the Bible that you see that um, tell, that you see it telling you that? Well, let me let me put it this way. I, I don't think there's any particular passage that mm -hmm. uh, proves it. But I think from my perspective at this point, the preponderance of the evidence favors mm -hmm. the biblical Unitarian perspective on the identity of Jesus as a human being who God determined to be the Messiah. Um, I think there are some difficult texts that we'll probably get into. Mm -hmm. that being that biblical Unitarianism is by far the vast minority viewpoint in our generation, mm -hmm. as it probably always has been, I think yeah. it's critical that we have a reasonable explanation of the dozen or so controversial passages that mm -hmm. um, typically uh, surface in these conversations with Trinitarians and Jehovah Witnesses and other Aryans that we are dialoguing with. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel that I can give you two or three passages that prove that the Trinity is mm -hmm. not the right perspective or that uh, Jesus has to be considered mm -hmm. only a human Messiah. But what I have to do is I have to demonstrate that that is the most reasonable interpretation mm -hmm. that makes all of the evidence work and can answer the objections the most effectively. Mm -hmm. So and that's um, why I, I, that's why I feel it's important to interact with Trinitarians and Jehovah witnesses and, and others is because it's a, we're in a constant process of, of having to put together pieces of evidence to kind of solve a crime as it were. Mm -hmm. And that's not an easy thing to do because we don't have all the information that we need. And we're looking mm -hmm. at historical information that was written down uh, almost 2000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we have to do the best we can from our perspective in the 21st century to yeah. critically and objectively evaluate it. Okay. That's the best we can do. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like if I'm to interpret what you're saying, it's not that there's like a, you know, silver bullet passage that says, I mean, there's a lot of Unitarians that think there are, I mean, they, they think John 17, three is the bee's knees and that, that, uh, you know, it's, it, it says that it says, you know, that they may know you the only true God and, and that proves everything. Um, but, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is there's, there's passages like that, that kind of, kind of point in one direction. There's all the passages that do very clearly 
teach the the true humanity of Christ and that that and that it's just sort of uh you know these these as you would say it you know relatively few texts that that if we understood them a little differently than is traditional we would just see it as as the biblical unitarian position is that am i kind of understanding where you're coming from on that right and and what i would say is is that if you look at a passage like John 17, 3, I think that's a that's a very important passage mm-hmm. from my perspective as a biblical Unitarian. However, I've seen Trinitarians suggest other ways of looking at that text that are are creative, but I can't be too critical of that because biblical Unitarians have to be creative in, in other passages. Mm-hmm. So I want to be fair-minded. And so I have to look and say, okay, uh, let me step back and look at John 17, three in the mm-hmm. way that you might harmonize it with other scriptures. And, yeah. uh, and I have to reevaluate everything and say, okay, you know, maybe, maybe we could read it the way that Andrew reads it or Rob mm-hmm. Bowman reads it. But now I have to put that in perspective with the, the way that mm-hmm. I look at the other evidence and sort it out and say, well, is my reading still the best option, which I think it is mm-hmm. of John 17, three or, could it be harmonized with a Trinitarian perspective or mm-hmm. an Arian perspective in such a manner that I really can't overemphasize it as a proof text? Right. I try to be careful about that. Right. Because oh. oftentimes people come along with, with different perspectives on things that are mm-hmm. eye-opening because it's easy to miss the forest for the trees right. if we start uh, being careless about certain presuppositions and assumptions that we're mm-hmm. making. And then we focus on details that cause us to, you know, sometimes miss the bigger picture. I'm guilty of that. I yeah. think you're guilty of that. I think scholars are guilty mm-hmm. of that. So we all have to be careful to be fair minded yeah. and, and, and try to be as objective as possible. Okay. Well, let me give you an example. Yeah, me, go ahead. Related to John 17, 3. When I hear people talk about John 17, 3, sometimes Trinitarians will go to that passage in Jude, right? Where it talks about the only Lord. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they'll make the same type of argument. They'll say, okay, if biblical Unitarians are going to insist that the only true God is one particular individual, then why don't they go into the passage in Jude and insist that, well, there's only mm-hmm. one Lord? Right. The only, is that the only, the only master and Lord passage? Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. So when I look at that, now, let me be fair-minded. So when I see somebody doing that, I say to myself, well, they're kind of using the same approach that a typical biblical Unitarian would use with the only language and emphasizing Mm -hmm. that in John 17, 3. So I can't fault them for going to the passage in Jude and, and, and using the same, you know, emphasis on only there to make a different point. So then what happens yeah. is, is it becomes a matter of sorting the two out. So now I have to be able to give a reasonable explanation for the Jude passage, mm-hmm. okay, only master and Lord, that makes sense of that term only in a way that doesn't contradict and is consistent with the way I'm emphasizing only in John 17, 3. And oftentimes what that does is it makes me less uh, intent on Mm-hmm. overstating the case in John 17, three, because I realize that there's, that it can, it can prove more than I want it to prove when the same kind yeah. of issue becomes advantageous to someone with a different perspective in another passage like Jude. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I've, I've, I'm right there with you. I, I've definitely 
heard some, you know, Trinitarians will make an argument and and I'll think, well, that sounds okay, but that the problem with that argument is then if you think that's a good argument, then you have then someone else can come by and say, what about this argument? And, and it, you know, yeah. So so I, I hear what you're saying. And I what I kind of look at is what is the what is the context, you know, of the of the passage? You know, what is going on, you know, and and, uh, you know, how does this fit with the flow of the argument that's being made? So I've, um, I don't think you can't see the what I have shown. I'm, I was pulling up the scriptures as you were talking, so I've got Jude pulled up right now. But um, what I want to do is actually jump into um, some stuff because you've been talking lately about John and the prologue and all that. And I want, because your perspective on the prologue of John is not like any Unitarian that I've read or come across or used to be. So um, I want to hear kind of your your take on what's going on there in the in the prologue and what and and how you come to that conclusion. Okay. Well, I would refer to the perspective that I offer on understanding the prologue as just being a fresh perspective on the evidence. And mm-hmm. from my personal experience, um, you know, all the material that I had to look at early on in my personal Bible study was the 20th century material by Anthony Buzzard and uh, Victor mm-hmm. Wareville and um, yeah. John Shane Height and the Christadelphians. That right. was the only published material that was available for quite a long time. But I also uh, was careful to keep in mind that, you know, there was Trinitarian scholarship and a lot of other resources that had a different perspective on passages mm-hmm. like the prologue. So at first I jumped, you know, after the, you know, the, the typical biblical Unitarian approach to the prologue where, you know, you, you defend the notion that the word in John 1, 1 is, mm-hmm. can't be a person. It's just an uh, impersonal attribute or a, or a, an mm-hmm. abstract concept. A plan, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then you try to work your way through at least the first nine verses of the prologue and maintain that idea that this word is an it, it's mm-hmm. impersonal. But, you know, as I was going through school and I was learning some things about Greek and about lexical semantics and other things that are important for biblical interpretation, and I was looking at the various ways that the prologue is translated and the reasoning behind the translations that we currently have, which I think are very accurate in the prologue, Mm -hmm. um, I began to realize that, you know, Trinitarians had some things correct in John Mm -hmm. 1, 1, for example, and there was good reason for them to capitalize word in John 1, 1 in their Mm -hmm. English translations, just like they capitalized Lamb of God in a biblical Unitarian translation in the same chapter. Okay. And so I began to look, so I began to look and say to myself, well, there, you know, I think maybe, uh, you know, Trinitarian scholars have some things right there. And it didn't persuade me to dismiss all of the other evidence Mm -hmm. that I see in favor of a biblical Unitarian perspective, but it caused me to realize that I needed to change my approach to the prologue and I needed to reevaluate the evidence, not only the Mm -hmm. grammar, but also 
the evidence and the context. And, you know, I had to challenge myself to come up with a way of interpreting the language that Mm -hmm. would be consistent with what I saw was, was accurate uh, in terms of how Trinitarian scholars were approaching the translations that we use and also give a reasonable explanation that would be consistent with what I see to be the other evidence for a biblical Unitarian perspective Mm -hmm. in general. So that was the challenge that I had. And, you know, as I've, as I've worked through that, of course, I've been interacting with other uh, Arians and Trinitarians like yourself that, that, Mm -hmm. but I think one thing I saw as an advantage was, is now I wasn't, I had more in common in the prologue with uh, a lot of the opponents to biblical Unitarianism, Mm -hmm. because I was beginning to see that, that I needed to accept that, you know, the mm-hmm. grammar and the context uh, so, strongly suggests that it's re- the yeah. word is referring to a person. Right. So, and that's uh, obviously, yes, that, so that's the, the point. So the word, you know, as we look at it in the beginning was the word. And, and so what you're saying is unlike most Trinitarians, who, or sorry, Unitarians who believe that that is sort of an abstract concept, concept or attribute or something, that that word is a person and that word is Jesus, that, that's who it's referring to. It's a title for him. Um, how do you, you know, what is, I guess, and, and I know you've told me, but I want, you know, the viewers to hear as well. Like, what is the way that you work with this text so that it's not saying that, you know, I mean, it says the word was God and it says, you know, in the beginning was the word. What is, how do you, as a biblical Unitarian who doesn't believe in preexistence of, of Jesus, um, deal with this text, you know, what makes it look Unitarian, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Okay. Um, there's a lot of detail to it, so I'll just be brief. And then, of course, I'll leave it to you to answer questions for clarification. Okay. But first of all, uh, what I did was I looked at the phrase in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And as a lot of biblical Unitarians over the past month or so, because of a couple of recent podcasts by Bill Schlegel and, you know, some of the material by Mm -hmm. uh, brother Cal from Trinity delusion, we've been talking about this for quite some time and it's finally beginning to get some exposure. But the first thing I did was I looked at the phrase in the beginning, you know, many years ago. And I thought to myself, what are my options there? And I, and I reevaluated that assumption that that simply because the Greek anarchy Mm-hmm. reflects the Greek version of Genesis 1-1, where it says in the beginning, is right. that the only option we have for in the beginning? So to, again, to make it short, what I realized is, is that that anarche occurs dozens of times in scripture, and most of the time it doesn't refer to Genesis 1-1. So I realized that I had an option in John 1-1 to reevaluate what the beginning might refer to. And mm-hmm. I think there's you know substantial evidence, not only in the way that the writer of the fourth gospel uses the term be, the beginning elsewhere, but also in Acts and in the Mark and in Luke, there's other uh, places where the beginning is associated with the time of John's baptism and the earthly ministry of Jesus. So I considered that an option to work with. And then I looked at the, that, at the uh, subject, which is the word. Mm-hmm. And of all the uses of logos, and there's hundreds of them, which is translated word in John 1, 1 right. throughout both the Greek and Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, hundreds of uses, they all, all boil down to one thing, and that is that the word refers to a verbal expression. 
of some kind. Now it might be mm-hmm. translated a couple different ways. Yeah. For example, if, uh, if somebody speaks a word, well, we know that that's a verbal expression. If somebody gives an accounting, let's say they go before mm-hmm. a judge in Acts or, or one of the rulers and they give an accounting of something that happened, we might translate it accounting, but it's a verbal account. Mm-hmm. So you can look at all the different ways that Logos is translated in scripture. And it all the one common denominator is that it's a verbal expression. So this, in my opinion, need, has to refer to some kind of a verbal expression. But then I thought about it a little bit further and I thought, well, a verbal re- expression can't happen unless there's a speaker who has a mouth to mm-hmm. speak it. Okay. Everything we have written in the Old Testament that we, that that's occasionally referred to in the New Testament as the word or logos mm-hmm. is something that originated either from the angels bringing it to Moses and telling him to speak it to the people or from prophets that were inspired by Holy Spirit to verbally express these things to the people. And then later they were written down. So the idea of a verbal expression has to be maintained here. And I think because that requires a speaker, it begs the question, well, what or whose word is this referring to? Mm-hmm. Okay, so then what I do is I look at the fourth gospel, again, just like I did with beginning. And I look at the way in this primary context of the prologue and the fourth gospel, how is the writer using the word? Mm-hmm. And then I find, yes, every time Logos is used 36 times, whatever, in the fourth gospel, it refers to a verbal expression. We've already established that. Mm-hmm. And then I look and I see that a you know, out of that 36 times, 28 or 29 of those specifically refer to what Jesus was speaking with his mouth Mm -hmm. and what the people were hearing from his verbal utterance. Even if he got that message or that content from God, the father, Mm -hmm. Logos refers to what's verbally expressed and it isn't God, the father that's verbally expressing it. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. So I began to see that, again, that associates this logos or this word throughout the fourth gospel with a specific person, okay? Mm -hmm. And then I looked at the next phrase, and the word was with God. And I think this is the key phrase here that most biblical Unitarians overlook, which I think Trinitarian uh, scholars and interpreters have had right all along. This unique construction here in the Greek, hain, which is where we get was, and with God, prostan theon, okay? Mm-hmm. There's a couple things to consider here. When you have prostan theon, we have about 119 uses of that prepositional phrase. And this is not just the preposition pros, this is prostan theon, which mm-hmm. means pros, the preposition with God as himself as the object. It's used about 119 times from Genesis to Revelation, and it always in the context, there's an individual who is in some way relating to God, and there's no exceptions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I had to think to myself, you know, that's why Trinitarians get the impression that this there is an individual called the Word who is with God. Okay. I can agree with that much because I think the grammar requires it. The word refers to a verbal expression. We mm-hmm. know that a verbal expression requires a speaker. And yeah. this idea of prostan theon, based on all of the other grammatical evidence we have, requires that this one called the word is a person that is in some way related to relating something to God the, the Father or is with God the Father. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the last phrase, 
the word what oh let me say one more thing about prostantheon okay when you when you have the verb hain which is from the verb imi which is a to, uh where we get i am right to be and i am yeah it, it grammarians refer to that as a stative verb okay a state of being and mm-hmm. when and we can see from other scriptures for example mark 6 3 when a being verb like i me is connected to prostan to, to the uh pros the preposition mm-hmm. the reason that translators translate it with is because it goes it, it doesn't usually the preposition pros by itself has the idea of to or toward. In other words, if I speak to you in Greek, it would be, I speak pros you. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when you combine it with a stative word, stative verb, like I yeah. me, which is done here in John one, one, then it becomes with, because we can look at the other occurrences of that throughout the Greek scriptures. And we can mm-hmm. see that translators translate it with, because it, goes beyond just simply being directional, but also has the implication that there's one or more persons who have gone to be together in a particular location. Okay. Mm -hmm. So again, I had to take all that into consideration and and change my thinking on, on the implications of that clause. And it, you know, occurred to me that, you know what, you know, Trinitarians are translating that correctly and, Mm -hmm. and they are seeing a person there uh, related to this, this one called the word for good reason. Then let me go on. So I, we don't spend all of our time on this, but, and the word was God in this particular case, I think because we have two individuals and again, I looked at God. Okay. So mm-hmm. God in John one, one B the word was with God and the word was God. When I look at the fourth gospel, the singular God, whether it's definite, the God is in John 1, 1b, or anarthris as, as it is in John 1, 1c, it always refers to the one that we all agree is God the Father. Mm-hmm. So I think there has to be some way that, and the word was God, is comparing mm-hmm. the one called the word to the one called God or with the one called God. But of course, that's open to interpretation. So when I look at the rest of the fourth gospel, I see Mm -hmm. that there was many ways, and this is again where I depart from most biblical Unitarians because I think they're missing the forest for the trees. You know, biblical Unitarians, they'll go to John 14, 28, and they'll say, well, see, Jesus said that the the Father is greater than I, end of the argument. Same thing they do with John 17, 3. Mm -hmm. But they miss the forest for the trees because there are numerous passages where Jesus said things that made him equal with God. For example, I and the Father are one. John mm-hmm. five eighteen, he was calling God his own father, making mm-hmm. himself equal with God. Other passages, he says, I do the works of the father. In right. other words, the works I do yeah. are equal to God's works. Yeah. And a lot I of people miss that. Thing. Like they don't see. Yeah. Yeah it's, yeah. it's not just I do what the father tells me. I do what the father is doing. What the exactly. father does, I do. Um, right. And, so, and I, I hear you. I, I want to jump in because um, I, I, you know, I think we've kind of. You know, one thing I, I, a lot of my audience um, is actually very, um, I would say, not as familiar with Unitarianism as, as they are with, you know, Trinitarian. And so um, I, I wanted to mainly bring out those things, yeah, that, that you're saying that kind of how you see it as, as being potentially a Unitarian, at least Unitarian compatible text. And, and that from what I saw, you know, you said as you said, you see the beginning 
um, in the beginning as something that can refer back to the beginning of the the ministry of Christ, whether you know the maybe the baptism, like you said, um, and and certainly there are texts like if you if you look at the beginning, you know the word beginning, um, just the that Greek word happens a lot uh, in the Gospels, and and a lot of times it does refer back to to that, um, and but then it sounds like a lot of the rest of it is almost you know like a lot like what trinitarians believe except for of course when you say the word was god it's just sort of a softer more flexible way that he's being referred to as god there and not that he really is yeah god. see i think um, i think one key text is john 518. And again, this mm-hmm. is another one where I, I think it's disappointing that biblical Unitarians try to go out of their way to dismiss. But in John 518, where it's it's the writer of the fourth gospel making a comment. And he says, mm-hmm. the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because he was breaking the Sabbath and he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the, the text says that he was calling God his own father, which nobody can deny. Biblical Unitarians can't deny that. Right. But the next clause is attached to that, which says mm-hmm. making himself equal with God. It doesn't say anything about the Jews misunderstanding that. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's no reason to separate those two clauses because they're connected grammatically. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's because he's calling God his own father that he's making himself equal with God. So if you deny the second clause, making himself equal with God, then you deny the the first clause, which is calling God his own father, which nobody wants to do. So I think mm-hmm. when we look at other, you know, the only way that Jesus calling, claiming to be equal with God is not the only language that Jesus has to use to be equal with God. Like we discussed earlier, he can say, I and the father are one. He can mm-hmm. say, um, I, the father has given all things into my hands. He can say all the words that I speak are the words of the father. He can say all yeah. the works I do are the father. There are all ways of saying he's equal with God. And what the point I wanted to make based on your previous comment is, is that what is different for me is that they're all predicated on that relationship between father and son. Yeah. Now the critical thing there is, is that we have hundreds of uses of these titles, son and father throughout mm-hmm. scripture. And yeah, where so, I differ from Trinitarians is that even if the father and the son are equal, mm-hmm. because they're called father and son, we don't have any uses of those distinct titles where they ever refer to the same being if it's two different persons. Like you and I can be fathers and sons as mm-hmm. one being and one person, but we can't be two persons and have the titles of father and son. So that's where I think when it says mm-hmm. he was calling God his own father, which means he's the son, making right. himself equal with God, that allusion to the father which is a, Jesus isn't called the father. That's a title exclusive to someone else. That's what, that's what we have to recognize Mm -hmm. is the foundation of that, that even though they're equal, Mm -hmm. the fact that one is the son and one is the father qualifies that equality such that we have to be able to explain it in terms of a father son relationship. Okay. And that's where I depart yeah. from the Trinitarian idea that we can explain that as two persons that are one being. 
Mm. I don't think that works because of the father and son language. But I agree with Trinitarians in as much as we have to have a way of explaining the mm -hmm. equal part. Otherwise, we're just dismissing that evidence. Yeah. So, yeah, and it sounds like a lot of your your thinking is is you know in in process of being refined and things like that. I I want to come back to the prologue and I want to go ahead cuz cuz I want to have some sort of back and forth um on you know and challenge you on a couple of things. Um because you know and and because I think that you're I mean obviously I think that you're more right than most unitarians when it comes to this text because you we agree on on a few things but um, I want to come back to you. You were talking about um, how we and 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 I'm gonna I'm this is gonna take a minute to develop, so just bear with me. Um, you mentioned how you know the word beginning or in the beginning, you know, is used throughout you know different different areas in the Gospels and John other other places, and that this could refer to something later. Um, what I would point out is is just specifically related to that is something that you that you actually point out just now with prostantheon. When you look at the entire phrase, it it when you look at a whole phrase, obviously a whole phrase is going to be more rare than just one word. Um, and so, like RK appears lots of times the be, you know beginning, but NRK doesn't appear nearly as often as as RK. And I I haven't done a full study on the entire you know everything but looking through at least how it's translated in uh you know looking for where rk appears in in the gospels and things like that i don't see any the only places i see this phrase in the beginning as as an nrk that that actual phrase which as you said that's how the septuagint renders genesis 1 1 um and i think that that's the I've I said this a long time ago, but I think that may be the only place in the entire Old Testament that that the phrase appears just like that. Um, that those two words together, they're at the beginning of of Genesis, and then that's it in the, in the Old Testament. Um, in the New Testament, we have it. Obviously, John one one, John one two says, you know, this one was in the beginning with God. N R K. It also appears in. Um, in Hebrews, Hebrews 1.10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Oh, that might be it. He's quoting a psalm, so maybe that's out of the Old Testament too. But um, So it might be there too. But basically, when it, when it refers to you know, that phrase, the whole phrase basically always goes back to the creation. Um, and so, you know, seeing, so that's what we should really be looking at. Just like we should be looking at prostantheon, you know, was with God, that's always a a personal relationship, you know, with God. And, and so I don't, and, and, and what I, what I want to point out here is, you know, it, I don't know how much of many episodes of this show you've watched, but, you know, a while ago before I started doing as much on the Hebrew roots as I've been doing, um, I was doing a series and I plan to get back to it, uh, you know, talking about the biblical theology of the Trinity. And, and, and really when you, when you study the Bible, sort of trying to get yourself into the mindset of the person the person first reading this you know the first the person reading john 1 1 at you know for the first time they would have you know the the jew uh, you know we're going to assume they're you know educated jewish person reading this they would have the the old testament you know understood um they would understand when it says in the beginning 
that would be the only thing they could they would have to draw from. They couldn't draw from later in the book because that hasn't happened yet. They haven't read that yet. Um, and and the other thing is when you when you look at the rest of the uh, the passage, uh, one thing that that I didn't even realize till not very long ago. Um, it was pointed out. I listened to a, a teaching on it, and, and they pointed this out. Is that uh, the term agenito, You know, was made or you know became. There's there's a lot of different ways um, it's translated in the text, but this word is used over and over and over and over in the prologue, and that word also appears over and over and over again in the first chapter of Genesis. Um, it's not always the word for created. It's sometimes it's sometimes just the word for you know there was begin there was evening and there was morning. That's a genito in the in the Septuagint of the uh, the you know uh, of Genesis. But then also when God says let there be light and there was light, that's a genito. That's that's you know there came to be light. And in John one one, especially or especially in John one three, it says all things came into being were you know agenito through him through the word and apart from him not one thing came into being that has come into being so everything that was agenito which again there is a there's an obvious parallel to genesis um not one of those things came into being without the word without jesus um and it it goes on like in fact um in verse six, it talk, where it start, first starts talking about John, it says, "A man came sent from God." That word "came" that's a genito. Like it's the man, you know, he came to be on the scene. So it's just like Genesis is using the term in sort of a number of different ways. You know, sometimes it refers to creation, sometimes it just to say there was evening and there was morning. Just like that in John one, you know, it uses the word. In a number of different ways, you know, a man came sent from God whose name was John. That's a genito, but also, you know, everything that came into being, you know, that just plain old genito, not not you know, came onto the scene necessarily. And uh, it doesn't say anything about the word being a genito until verse fourteen. The word became flesh. The word a genito, flesh. So that was something that happened, you know, at that point in time. And I would also. You know, if we're if we're looking at parallels, the other thing to look at, and, and I think it's great to look at logos and look at you know how are the different ways that it's used, um, but then we ultimately have to come back to you know what is the going on here in this text, and um, one thing that that also first century Jews would have been very familiar with would be um, the the Aramaic targums and where how they connect to the Old Testament. So I'm sure you're aware of this and I've talked about this a little bit on the show, but you know, the there's there's good reason to believe that that the Hebrew language at the time of Jesus was kind of like Latin is to us. Like it was a known but no longer really spoken, you know, generally spoken language. Um it was, you know, mainly Aramaic that people spoke. So they had the scriptures in Hebrew, they were translated into Aramaic very loose translations in a lot of cases, very interpretive translations. And so we know we have a lot of Targums that one of the things they do is they take this term memra, which means word, and they and gets translated word, and they they insert it. Like it's not even actually in many, many texts that it gets inserted into. So they say things like, you know, where where one text says, you know, and God did thus and such, um, the 
their text would say, the Targum would say, and the word of God did thus and such. Um, but it, but it's not always that way. Sometimes it would say something like, and God did thus and such by his word. So there would be a distinction sometimes between God and his word. Uh, and sometimes they would just insert word where it just was God there in the original Hebrew. Um, and we have that in, in some texts, uh, specifically in, in Samuel and in um, the, the big ones. There's one in Genesis, one in Samuel, where it says the word, of, you know, the word of God came to, like Abram, and the word of God came to Samuel. And if you, if you read carefully in those texts, it really looks as though the word is, this is it's a title for a person. It's not just you know, a, a speaking in the ear. And it's it the word comes in and says things and does things and and it's it's very interesting. Um but that seems to be what was picked up upon by those who ended up doing the targum thing and inserting it all over the place. So that's the background that someone would have reading John's gospel, that someone would likely have. Um well certainly the Old Testament, certainly what's in Samuel, what's in Genesis, you know, Jeremiah, uh word says the word came to me and, and that kind of thing. But if, if you're thinking along those lines that, you know, okay, so the word is this weird sort of title that's kind of for God, but it seems like it's something maybe distinct and different from God. And then you read what John says. He says, in the beginning, well, that's okay. We know what in the beginning is, was the word. And as you said, spoken, it's always spoken. And what happens in Genesis? You know, God said, you know, and that's how, how everything happens in there and so they they would understand that there's the spoken word but then it says the word was with god prostantheon and again they they would have this idea well yeah there's there's times when the word seems to be a person who's you know distinct from god relating to god but also seems to be god and then he goes on and says and the word was god and i think that there's a a very good case to be made if if you follow this chronologically and and you know avail yourself of you know what would be their background the first time reading this because John's going to be a good communicator he's not going to it's not going to be a sort of a big a really big puzzle now i agree with you what you said about you know bringing different things together and trying to put the puzzle together um i think that's what the trinity does you know is it says look there's all these texts you know there's not one text that says God is three in one, you know, that, that just kind of gets the whole concept into one place and just says it like that. Um, but what I've always said is that the biblical trinity is, is the Trinitarian doctrine is more like your eschatology than it is like your belief about the resurrection. You know, your, your belief about the resurrection, it's a, that's a simple doctrine. You, you believe Jesus was resurrected because it says so. He was raised from the dead, okay. you know, but the trinity is more like whatever your eschatology is. It's something that you you kind of figure it out by putting the pieces together. Um, but when it comes to the positive statements of Scripture, you have statements like John 1.1 1, 1 that says the Word was God. So you have statements of deity of Christ, but you also have statements of humanity of Christ. You also have statements that affirm the deity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that distinguish the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, You know, and that also affirm there's only one god yahweh so that that somehow with all of that there's still only one god and i would say that the trinity just is all of those things put together um okay. you're getting way ahead of me so can i interject yeah. something yeah yeah 
Okay. First, I want to correct something that you said at the very okay. beginning of, of uh, your last um, commentary. And mm-hmm. then I want to build on some things that you said. So the, the first thing I want to correct is, is that that exact phrase, anarche, mm-hmm. that's found in John 1.1, 1, 1, it does occur two other times in the New Testament where it can't possibly refer to creation outside of the prologue. So that would be Acts 11.15 and Philippians uh, 4.15, I believe. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, people can check okay. that later. I also want to point out that it does occur 32 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And okay. there's only two times that it explicitly refers to the Genesis creation, one would be Genesis 1, 1 that you cited. The other would be probably in Proverbs 8, assuming mm-hmm. that refers to the Genesis creation. Um, the other 29 or 30 occurrences refer to beginnings of all kinds of other things, like the reigns of kings, mm-hmm. things like that. So all the only point I want to make there is, is that's why when we look at that additional evidence, mm-hmm. we have to be careful not to assume that this can only be citing directly from Genesis 1-1 and putting mm-hmm. the beginning in that particular historical context. So we have options. That's all I'm saying. I, I definitely yeah. agree with you that there's an illusion. And I think light and darkness also later in the context alludes to it. But mm-hmm. the question is, is the context of the prologue the same as the context of Genesis creation? Is the purpose of the prologue to explain how the heavens and the uh, earth originated in Genesis 1-1, or is it to explain something about how the mm-hmm. ministry of Jesus followed after the preaching of John the Baptist? That's where we would differ on context. Mm-hmm. Let me develop a little bit more about prostantheia. Well, okay, yeah. And, 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 and agree with you on some things. Let me let me get mm-hmm. to that, because I, I got behind you, because you went on to Agonetto, too. Yeah. But one thing I would point out here is that one mistake that I often hear from biblical Unitarians, some of these guys that are making podcasts and things like that, is that they'll go to the Old Testament and they'll find passages that say, you know, and, the, and their intent is to is to try to interpret mm-hmm. the word Logos in John 1.1 1, 1 as something abstract or as God's plan or like right. you said, a message, okay, from the Old Testament that they want to see fulfilled in Jesus in John 1.14. Mm-hmm. But here's a mistake that's often made. and this is why I'm critical, is that the Greek grammar that's used in the handful of passages that they'll pull out of wisdom literature and some of these other sources, uh, earlier sources that speak of God's word being with him, don't use the same Greek grammar, okay? And so that, and and what they're doing is, is they're taking the with God in English in John 1.1, and they're looking at some of these with God passages Mm -hmm in Greek from earlier literature, but the prepositional phrase, even pros is not there, let alone prostantheon. Mm. Prostantheon has to be taken as a clause, a, a technical clause. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not just the word, the preposition pros that means to or toward that's directional. When it's connected with the God, it's used a certain way, 118 other times in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it's important to look at that usage because, you know, I know there's some people that, you know, don't understand how translation and lexical semantics and things work that'll be, that are critical, even openly about statistical analysis of, of, of word usage and, and grammatical forms. And and that just indicates ignorance. We, the, the reason that, 
Trinitarian scholars correctly translate this, the word was with God and capitalized word is mm-hmm. because the Greek grammar has to be consistent with how it's used everywhere else. You right. can't say, oh, you know, we, I realize there's 118 other passages I can't explain, but in John 1, 1, the writer was just being innovated and decided that an impersonal word was going to turn into a human being. You, you, mm-hmm. That's just a, a bad approach. Yeah. You can't do that. And so I think it's better. And I had to resolve in my own conscience just to agree that the Trinitarians have that part right. And so as a biblical Unitarian, if I'm not going to going to draw the same conclusions that they do, it, it isn't going to do me any good to, to, to fight a losing battle against the part that they have right. I'd rather look at what we have in common, mm-hmm. take the better position on what Hain Prostantheon was with God yeah. implies and work, work from there. So then we have in the beginning, which we have more flexibility that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So then that becomes an area of flexibility. Okay. The word was God. Well, you know, just like Trinitarians, you know, there's three or four ways that they explain, you know, what that Greek grammar means and how mm-hmm. it can be paraphrased. Right. And, and so that gives us some flexibility. Okay. Right. So as we move through the prologue, I think we just have to keep in mind that the beginning is a really critical thing. If I'm right about the beginning, referring to the time of uh, the public ministry of Jesus, whether as a whole or more specifically the baptism of the time of John's baptism, not the baptism mm-hmm. of Jesus. Some biblical Unitarians, you know, want that to be the baptism of Jesus or John one fourteen to be the baptism of Jesus. I don't think that's the issue. I would look at it more as a general reference to the beginning in terms of where the relationship between Jesus and the disciples began. And they Mm -hmm. realized who he was, which was as a result of John the baptizer identifying him publicly. So that makes a big difference in how we, we establish a context for the prologue. And that's an area where we differ. So as a biblical Unitarian, I have to do a good solid job, just like if I was presenting an an alternative explanation Mm -hmm. of a crime to you in a court case, I need to defend a reading or an interpretation of John 1, Mm -hmm. 1 that can substantiate taking the beginning with a different historical reference than Genesis 1, 1, but at the same time incorporating our common understanding that the word was with God demands that that uh, the writer is referring to a person. And there's more to it than just the prostantheon if we mm-hmm. went through the rest of the prologue. So we right. would agree at other points that, you know, those pronouns are correctly translated him because of other grammatical factors and because of the context. Mm-hmm. As far yeah. as uh, uh, Aganado is concerned, um, the issue I would take there is simply that it's a very, very, it, it's a word that has a lot of flexibility. Like sure. you did, like you mentioned, in which we agree, yeah. even in the prologue, it's translated five or six different ways. Right. It really depends on the immediate context. So again, we have flexibility there. So yeah, and I think, I think that that's where there's room for discussion. Right, and and it's <clears> not <throat> like the argument I'm making isn't so much about what how you translate it, as much as 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 capturing and seeing the parallels and seeing the fact that in Genesis in the Septuagint. It it's because it's just the nature of the word that it, you know, it kind of generally means came to be, but it can mean something like came to be on the scene also, you know, came to be in existence. It can mean a number of things, but but it is used in those multiple ways 
in the Septuagint of Genesis and in the in the prologue of of John. So there's so what I see is is lots of stuff that that is is clearly paralleled with with Genesis and and that would you know that's why you know and I've always made this argument and 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 I, I stand by this that when it comes to any text we we should we should under, we should seek to understand it how it was intended to be understood on its own whatever our theology is um and and that if you know so there are lots of texts that trinitarians may appeal to um to defend the trinity and i look at it and say well that's not really the purpose of that text like it's not really talking about that but i can see where you would make the connection um there's some bad translations you know that that uh you know some older translations will you know utilize utilize different textual stuff and they come up with stuff that isn't likely original so i mean i don't go to that but um but i think that it's it's important to to look at this and 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 this is where you know one thing i hear you saying and and i would challenge you to think about and then uh, this will be kind of the last thing we'll be able to say because we're getting down to the end and we have some questions we we do q a on this show so um is i, I just would ch- challenge you to, to think about you know is your interpretation looking for options to fit what you see as 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 the best theology versus just looking at the text itself and trying to make it you know fit within itself and and understand you know and and most easily understood even if that's a a challenge to your theology and i know for me that was a big reason that i became a trinitarian was um you know one text that really got got me and i you know dug into it and i became an arian for a shorter period of time uh, because of it was in colossians where you know it talks about jesus creating all things and i i tried you know when the first time i came across it i thought oh well that's easy you know that's the father that's god you know i it's it's all pronouns in there you know he you know all things were created by him and for him and and it's, it's not saying jesus there so we're good but then you know it starts talking about jesus and it finishes with stuff like he is the head of the body the church and you know stuff that is definitely about jesus and it's just he him he him the whole way through there's no you know indication within the text that that it's changing places and so i i was like well you know and and i i know and i'm not bringing that up to to try to make you answer it or anything but but my point is that that we when we come to the text what i would you know just sort of give you as a a bit of food for thought before we go to some uh questions from the live stream or the live chat is uh you know it's just whether is to ask yourself am i am i coming up with this you know option whether you know seeing it as an option i i i'm totally there you know i understand that sometimes words and phrases get used more than one way and so we we want to look at you know is this an option but we should also be asking is it really an option in this text that i would i would come to without a certain theology pushing me toward that option um versus just you know reading the text as it is um could i respond to that quickly? yeah yeah you can you can say something I, to that. I, I totally agree with you one of the important things is that all of our theology and i mean involving theology christology pneumatology mm-hmm. eschatology ecclesiology all the categories 
of theology that we recognize in scripture, they all have to fit together and tell Absolutely. a complete story. Okay. Someone who only knows a lot about Christology or, or maybe is, uh, has an expertise in all the different views of the millennium, mm-hmm. you're going to miss some things because sometimes when you talk about things related to eschatology or pneumatology, it's going to cross mm-hmm. paths with certain assumptions that you're making about Christology oh, or yeah. about theology. So yep. it's very important what you're saying. It, it, we have to be careful not to isolate Christology or isolate particular passages of scripture and yep. try to force them to fit certain presuppositions. We always have to be able to step back, as I said earlier, and mm-hmm. evaluate, okay, if I take this particular perspective on the prologue, how does that affect other areas of, of, of biblical theology? And how does that affect mm-hmm. the way that I approach other passages? Like the examples we gave at the beginning, yeah. if I force the only in John seventeen three to be a cut and dry proof text for biblical Unitarianism, then mm-hmm. what happens when someone else brings up that passage in Jude or a couple of other passages where only isn't quite that exclusive. Right. See, now, now I run into a problem. So like you're saying, we have to be careful to always step back and mm-hmm. consider how the way we're looking at a certain text or a certain passage affects the way that we are looking at the rest of the evidence. Because maybe a good analogy would be a Rubik's cube. Okay, everybody remembers the Rubik's cube. It was that cube that had a bunch of different sides with different colors and you mix them all up and then you try to solve the puzzle by getting all the sides to have the same color again. Well, if anyone is familiar with doing that, there's times when you get one color on one side or Mm -hmm. two sides right, but the colors are mixed up on the other sides. And the only way that you're going to solve the puzzle is to undo the two colors that you thought you had right and rework the puzzle so that you can get that third and that fourth and that fifth. And finally all six of the sides to, to solve the puzzle. And that's Mm -hmm. what we're constantly doing. And that's why it's, it's with biblical exegesis and interpretation. That's why it's important to always be willing like I was to unravel something like, you know, maybe a position mm-hmm. on John one one and and the word that that really wasn't uh, the best option considering the other pieces of the puzzle that I yeah. need to fit together. Yeah. So, okay. I agree with you on that. It, it has to. We have to have the big picture in mind whenever we're uh, even addressing one passage. Mm-hmm. It's, it all has to. Assuming that it's 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 a unified story, then we, we need to, to make sure that all the chapters fit together. Right. Regardless yeah. of, of where that takes us, we have to be able to do, to ex- explain the whole story and not just, uh, you know, pull out one or two passages and give a, a creative mm-hmm. interpretation. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and I, I like I said, I, I agree with, I, I think you and I are, we have a lot of the same thoughts uh, as far as methodology but then uh, just coming to different conclusions but well you know uh we're, we're coming to the end I, I do need to um i want to get to some questions so one thing we okay. always do uh at the end of our shows are live you know questions from the live chat um i'm gonna pull those up and if there's anything in here you want to talk about as well that's totally cool so um first chat i've our first uh, question i've got uh, from Dustin Neely in the chat says, question, your guest said he was raised Catholic. Did he ever consider the Eastern Orthodox Church? 
That's definitely a question for you. No. Okay. <laughs> very, very simple answer. Um, is there, I guess, uh, one question I would have to follow up. Is it just, uh, I guess, what made you come out of, because I know you said you go to an evangelical church now. Um, what caused you to leave the, the Roman Catholic Church and, and, and go that direction? Well, the reason is because when I uh, was exposed to evangelical Christians in high school, and like I mentioned on the radio, mm -hmm. I'm just the kind of person, I guess, at that point in my life where I wanted to have uh, a, a better foundation for my faith. And at that time, I probably didn't understand mm -hmm. the basis for a lot of things that I learned in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So as I began getting an evangelical perspective on things, it kind of directed me toward Bible study. And then as I became mm -hmm. more interested in Bible study, it became more about a specific period of time in history and a particular mm -hmm. collection of writings that, you know, even the Catholic church acknowledged were scriptures. And that began to be the focus of my study. And ever since then, I've thought to myself, well, you know, that would be the primary historical evidence and the only historical evidence that even precedes the Catholic mm -hmm. church and the, and historic Christian orthodoxy, which, you know, I, I would rather go to that primary source and try to understand what Jesus and the apostles were originally teaching. And that's why, you know, my focus became more on that. Although I will say that I do still uh, go to the Catholic church on occasion and I don't have anything uh, against the Catholic Church, I when I sit in the Catholic Church now and and uh, think about the liturgy and I think about uh, you know the message that's given the homily by the priest, mm -hmm. a, a lot of it makes a lot more sense to me because I understand the scriptures, and so yeah. I, I'm not offended by it. I have no uh, issues with it. Um, and uh, if that's a you know a, a Christian church that you're comfortable with, then I would I would encourage you to continue there and. And uh, learn as much as you can, and and pay attention to the the liturgy, and you know understand the message behind it because it 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 does go back. Much of it goes back to scripture. Yeah. Okay. Um. So next question here, and I think I can handle this one, and I'm sure you'd agree. Uh, this is from Diana Williams. It says so, and I don't know if this is for me, but. I'm going to go ahead and answer it because it's in there. It says, so some Unitarians believe Christ existed before his incarnation and other Unitarians believe he didn't exist before his incarnation, question mark. Um, so in a, in a sense, yes, I, I think um, most folks who simply call themselves Unitarian or Biblical Unitarian or whatever, you know, that's in their name. Most of them don't believe Jesus preexisted his, his uh, you know, birth, you know, Bethlehem. Whereas those who do believe that he preexisted may call themselves Arians or because that's what Arius believed, uh, something along those lines. Um, but maybe some of them also identify with the Unitarian label because they deny the, the three in one part, which is what where sort of the word Trinity comes from. It's a, as con I, uh, contrast to that. Can I what respond to that real quick? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if this was uh, what's behind the question, but there are a uh, quite a few biblical Unitarians who I think uh, carelessly use the pre-existence language. So sometimes they'll say things like, well, you know, the Messiah pre-existed in the mind or plan of God. Oh yeah. But that, that's, that's nonsense language. You know, pre-existence is a theological term that was 
developed by historic Orthodox Christians to explain that Jesus Christ existed as another type of being, mm-hmm. okay, before he became a human being or before the incarnation, okay? Pre-existence is a word that biblical Unitarians shouldn't be using. There shouldn't be any notion of pre-existence in a biblical Unitarian conversation because biblical Unitarians don't believe that Jesus existed Mm -hmm. in any form prior to uh, his human birth. The other problem is, is that just think about it in terms Mm -hmm. of common sense. If my wife and I decide that we're going to have a baby next year, Okay, we might talk about how it's our will or our plan to have a baby next year, but we all agree that that baby doesn't exist until it's actually born next year. We don't talk about the baby pre-existing in our mind or pre-existing in our plans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Planning right. and, and thinking are not pre-existence. So it's nonsense mm-hmm. terminology. And I think sometimes that can be confusing for Trinitarians, understandably. Right. Because right. really a Trinitarian term is being borrowed and mm-hmm. misinterpreted and then yeah. carelessly applied to a biblical Unitarian explanation of a passage like John 8.58 that makes no mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that uh, for sure. Okay, so I got one last question and um, we'll, we'll wrap this up So because uh, we've gone a little bit long. So the, um, the last question here, this is from Dustin Neely. Uh, says Malachi three six says I am the Lord I change not. If Jesus is not an eternally begotten Son, then there was a time the Father was not Father. Did God change? So I think um, this is a uh, well. This would be this would be a you know a question really for both because because the way that I talk about the Trinity, I I don't really. Um, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with the idea of, of Jesus being the eternally begotten Son. I just don't see it as as a, a specific biblical. Um, it's not that's not something I can go back to Scripture and say, yeah, here's the text where it says he's eternally begotten. Um, I can see the text where it says he's the Son and that he's distinct from the Father, that he's God, all those things. But um, I, uh, the the thing is that the term, you know. What I would say is that God doesn't have to change for the term, you know, father, you know, the, the term father and son. I, I would say, you know, do eternally apply to to the father and the son, but that Jesus doesn't have to be eternally begotten, you know, in order for that to be the case. It can be, you know, a just the closest language we have, you know to describe that relationship without without it having to you know cross over into into an ontological statement that that Jesus you know and 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 I know that you know there's different takes on what eternally begotten means but but one of the common ones and maybe this I don't know Dustin if this is where you're coming from but that it really is um you know that that Jesus existence depends on the existence of the father and etern- and does so eternally, um, that they share the same nature, but that Jesus existence somehow is dependent on the the Father, and I would, I I would just say I don't see that specifically taught in in Scripture, and if Jesus, you know, I, I see the f- the Father and Son as eternal, both eternal, in in the same sense. the The difference between Father and Son, 
I would see the main difference is one uh, we we don't see it really talked about much in the Old Testament. Um, it's alluded to a little bit, but the main difference has to do with the with the incarnation. Um, but but it but Jesus always was there as a distinct person um, is where I would come down on it and um, and so that's that's where I'm at. So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and uh, stop things there. Uh, I do appreciate uh, all the questions you guys and um, and Rivers. Thank you so much for for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the discussion. Yeah, and uh, next week I have no idea <laughs> what we're gonna be talking about, but uh, I look forward to uh, a good show, and um, we'll get into. We'll get into something in the Bible. It'll be something awesome. And I'm excited about it, even though I don't know what it is. Uh, so we will see you all next week. Uh, God bless. And we'll see you then. the beginning of wisdom podcast you can follow andrew schumacher and the ministry at beginningwisdom.org where you can find links to the youtube channel and follow on social media sign up for email alerts to never miss new content please like share and rate the episode if it has blessed you god bless and always be ready